0: TNB Tech Minute gives you the day's top tech headlines, from the big names in Silicon Valley to the halls of power. If it's making news in tech, we've got it. Check out TNB Tech Minute in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is The Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today we're speaking with Erin Lowe's Coutraro, founder of She Should Run. It's a nonpartisan organization that encourages women to run for elected office. Women represent 51% of the U.S. population, but still hold less than one-third of elected positions. And that lack of representation has an impact on policies and how women's concerns are represented. Erin has encouraged hundreds of women to run, and her organization also offers tools and training to help them launch successful campaigns. She's here today to tell us what inspired her to get involved in politics and what challenges women still face to get into those seats. Welcome to Secrets, Erin. Hi,
1: glad to be here.
0: Great to have you. First, how are you?
1: Well, uh, challenging times for sure. Just taking it day by day.
0: There's been a lot going on, the pandemic and the recent protests. It's it's almost hard to remember that we're in the final few months of an election cycle. What's work been like for you?
1: (laughs) That's right. We have, uh, you know, just a short while to go until the November election. Work has been, you know, fast moving. We went into 2020 knowing this was going to be another historic year for a number of reasons. And who knew that on top of that would be layered so much else? You know, we really have been just moving as quickly as we can as an organization to address what we see as a real moment to make it clear to women just how important their voices and their perspectives are needed in elected office. So we're working harder than ever.
0: August marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. Women of color still didn't have easy access to the polls, however, and voting rights are still an issue, but officially it was there. Where do you see your organization in the succession of the women's suffrage
1: movement? Yeah, so, you know, this year's centennial is, of course, a significant landmark for our country, yet, You know, it's so important to point out that with a 100 years past, we're still grappling with so many of the same questions and challenges that were faced by so many, what feels like so long ago, you know, so not only around issues of who gets to vote, but over citizenship rights, over women's rights, you know, it's important to mark this time and to also know, just how much growth was still needed at that point and how much growth is still needed today.
0: Tell us a bit about the work you do at She Should Run.
1: Sure. So, you know, She Should Run is really focused on a pretty unique point of the political landscape. So I always encourage folks when they're thinking about basically what does it take to make a candidate, to picture a funnel, and to know that, you know, most people are really focused on that part of the funnel that is generating and spitting out those amazing candidates who are on the ballot when the reality is that it takes a whole lot to get a woman to the place of even considering the possibility of a run for office. And so she should run... Our main focus is that slice, the woman who's leading in her community, who's leading in her workplace, who's getting it done in all sorts of ways, but is not yet seriously considering a run for office. Our programs really meet her where she is to make the case that she should absolutely be thinking about elected office, especially. And right now, we're making such a strong case for all the incredible local offices that exist around the country that play such a humongous role in our day to day lives.
0: How come women who are in those positions aren't seeing themselves as candidates?
1: Yeah, I mean, the numbers are pretty clear on this. Women represent less than a third of elected offices up and down the ticket. And I always pause when I'm talking about representation numbers and say, you know, most of us don't know, and I know it was shocking to me the first time I learned it, that there are over 500,000 elected offices in this country. And if... We want to have the smartest policies and solutions at the table. We have to be tapping the full talent pool we have to offer. And right now, you know, women are grossly underrepresented and women of color even more so. As a democracy, we cannot expect to thrive. We can't expect to thrive as a country if we're not actually seeing those voices and perspectives in elected roles. How do
0: you build for that? How do you get that? increased
1: diversity. Yeah, you have to be very intentional about it. You have to look at, you know, the systemic disparities. And frankly, this time of COVID has just shined a light on so much in this country that is in deep need of fixing. And it's interesting because when you look at sort of what it takes, you know, back to that, like, what does it take to make a candidate? We face such a challenge to get women and specifically to get women of color to step forward because it's hard to even imagine yourself in the role if you don't see yourself in the role. And so we have to, starting at a very young age, I mean, this is like long game work. We're not going to (laughs) solve this problem overnight, but starting at a very young age, we have to talk to young girls about why their voices matter and how much we need their voices in positions of power at whatever age appropriate way you can describe that. It is that discrepancy of girls being exposed to the idea of something like political leadership. It's less likely for girls than it is for boys. And you carry that forward to, you know, to puberty when girls are less likely to, you know, kind of raise their hands and class, there's a correlation there in politics again, where then girls are less likely to see themselves as elected officials or, just to, or to think about running for office later. Carry that all the way forward to where, what we see with women that we are you know, targeting to say, look, we need your voices represented. And you know, it, it's something that you can sort of tackle in the now. You can vote. Your vote is incredibly important. And then at the same time, you need to say, okay, and we need to do better. We need to be planting the seed with future candidates to make that difference.
0: So the women who come to you, what kind of goals do they have? And what's your strategy to help
1: them achieve their goals? So it's really interesting. You know, we sort of see ourselves in two places. It's an ongoing conversation in the organization of not only are we making a case and trying to find these women where they are, where they're leading and pulling them in, but then also there are women who are saying maybe I'll run for office one day, but I don't even know where to start. And so we're either getting women really cold in that place where their friend, their mom, their aunt has said, you know what? You need to think about running for office. And then they stumble their way to us because their friend's nudging them along or they're coming to us and saying, okay, I'm curious about running for office, but I'm not ready for a fundraising training just yet. Am I sure I wanna do this? What does this look like? How the heck do women make time for this? When women come to us, they're often facing a concern that they couldn't possibly be qualified enough. They're facing a concern that how could they manage the time that it takes Many women are facing the concern that they don't have the resources they think it takes to run. So we're there to tell them, look, here's a good place to start and kind of getting centered in that why they want to run and then building forward from that. So it's a whole host of sort of challenges that we see when women come in. But at the end of the day, it's really, we see that if a woman's willing to even take that first step of curiosity, we're at a better chance of seeing her eventually represented. What are some of the trainings you offer? Yeah, so we have an online community. Any woman can come to us at no cost, join our community. You know, you don't even have to sign up for anything. You can truly be that person who comes in. We call them the lurkers. It's okay, we welcome them, who are sort of tiptoeing around, accessing some articles, you know, listening and watching videos of women who have run and served and kind of taking it all in. Or you can take that next step. We have self-guided courses that... women can take. We have facilitated courses and workshops. But one topic that is often visited is one dealing with what we call imposter syndrome. Just this reality that You know, this combination of women, you know, feeling like they're not qualified for the roles and feeling like it has you know, somebody else has to be able to do this. I don't see myself being able to show up in the rooms that way. And so we name that, we tackle that. And we often have women having a lot of aha moments about how they get beyond it.
0: Erin, it might surprise people to learn that you didn't start off in politics yourself. You worked as a teacher and then a corporate trainer. And then in the early 2000s, you started working for Robin Carnahan when she was running for Missouri Secretary of State. What sparked this career pivot for you?
1: Yeah, you know, look, I have always been somebody who I was always looking at like the systems. What is the lever that we can pull that can make the most change? That's how I approached my time in public education. And then ultimately, I got my master's degree in organizational communication, you know, my focus was on learning and development. It was on how people communicate in organizations. And again, it was that piece for me where I was really drawn to, okay, how do you build the best organizations possible with people? And, you know, I went to work for an incredible organization that was leading in this area. And at the same time on the side, I was volunteering in my community and, you know, got involved in Politics kind of for the first time at that point. And I had these minor aha moments where I would realize that, you know, everything from my older person to my city council member had this huge impact on my day to day life. I was then, you know, curious and networking, and somebody came to me with an opportunity to. You know, to explore this campaign that Robin Carnahan was running for Secretary of State. Missouri is my home state. I thought this is crazy. First of all, a lot of people start in politics right out of high school or even sooner, and you know, it's like a campaigner track. I was not on that track. Ultimately, what I did though is I quit my um, very stable <laughs> job in the corporate space and I joined this campaign full time, serving. As a development assistant. And, you know, my unofficial title was Call Time Queen. What that meant was I was pre dialing for Robin on her campaign, which meant when she was dialing for dollars, I had to travel everywhere with her. I basically lived with her on the campaign trail and it gave me such tremendous access. So for me, what I saw was I saw how much this particular woman cared about doing good for her state, for her country, and why she was in it. And I was just, frankly, intoxicated by that. Then I saw the challenges that she faced. in at that time, running for office with predominantly male consultants and advisors and what she was up against. And so I started to look into what it takes to get individuals like Robin into elected office. And it just, it opened a whole new path for me to, you know, to sort of see out that change that I just was naturally drawn to at that point.
0: So what were some of the challenges you saw Robin face?
1: You know, the challenges that Robin faced are many of the same challenges that we still see today for candidates. One thing I always like to point out women raise just as much money as men when they run for office, but they often have to work twice as hard to do just that. So money still plays a role in women's ability to advance uh, successfully in office. I think also, you know, there is this reality of women facing a double standard on the campaign trail when it comes to what they're asked for in qualification. So women are held to a higher standard by voters when it comes to qualifications. You know, we're still in a position today where when you see a male candidate and specifically a white male candidate, you are likely to assume that individual has qualification and has the qualification to serve. Women largely, and, you know, we still have a long way to go on this, obviously, are asked to explain and make a case for their qualification. So we're still in a position today where, you know, those who really work with women who have already made the decision to run often have to advise them to lead with their qualifications and advise people who are, you know, if you have a friend who's a woman who's running for office and you're trying to help her, um, you you yourself as kind of a validator should always lead with this woman's qualification because it's not assumed. So, you know, there are other barriers and I, you know, I, I think it's important to note that women of color face even you know, kind of that higher bar in the eyes of voters when it comes to qualifications, when it comes to ability to lead, and the case has to be made. And often these candidates are in positions to, you know, have to work really hard to get the support that they need. With laying out all those challenges, I want to point out, though, when women run for office, they still win at the same rate as men. So this is not all bad news. It's just women have to work really hard to get there. Why do they
0: have to work extra hard for the money, for the fundraising?
1: You know, this is really about um, a deep-seated old boys club when it comes to how money flows um, in politics. So, so much of women's ability, and and I want to pause here and say when we talk about raising the big dollars, it is... Often about raising the big dollars for federal office, statewide office as well, sometimes, you know, big state legislative roles. But the majority of local level offices don't require this kind of raise. So I always like to pause and say, you know, money keeps a lot of people out of politics because they sort of assume no matter what office you're running for, you're going to have to raise that congressional budget. (laughs) And we're far from that. But When it comes to the big dollars, and there's a lot flowing, you know, I think every election cycle, we increase the dollars that are contributed from individuals, from PACs. I think we just passed, you know, we're in the billions at this point. It's always trending upwards. And Represent Women just released a report that showed we still have this huge discrepancy of major political action committee giving. So these are like the big... Uh, interest groups to corporations that have PACs that give to candidates, they're still giving the vast majority of funds to men.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Erin will discuss the challenges still facing women in politics and what she's doing on election night. In 2016, some women thought we were gonna have our country's first female president in Hillary Clinton. How did Hillary's loss and other well-known women such as Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Kamala Harris dropping out of this year's presidential race affect the psyche of women who are thinking about having a political career? And I, I just wanna note too, on the Republican side of the aisle, we've had women such as Carly Fiorina who've run for the top job and dropped out as well.
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I can almost predict what's going to happen in our community now. We've been doing this long enough that each time there is a moment where you have a prominent female leader put herself out there and ultimately not find success in that run, we actually see more women stepping up into our community. I think back to, we had just launched our virtual community and courses um, that were part of She Should Run in October of 2016. And just to give you a sense of scale at that point, you know, we had been in the field for six months testing and trying to figure out what the formula was, how many women we could get into the program, what it takes. We'd done all the math to see it was going to take us basically with a launch in October of 2016 through the end of the year to get 100 women into the program. And we were preparing as a nonpartisan organization, to recognize that the election of the first female president, which was presumed to happen at that point, um, would potentially hurt our ability to move the needle because people would assume mission accomplished. So we had like factored in this reality that things were about to message-wise get challenging. So election day came and went. We actually closed that same time period with 4,500 women in the community. I mean, it was just this explosive moment of women stepping up and saying, we have to do better. I have to do this for my child. We see this in every election now as we move forward that somebody just feels like, we have to do better.
0: As you mentioned before, it seems like some female candidates face a higher standard and need to have a much more robust political resume than some of the male candidates. Yet on the other hand, we have women like New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who did not have much professional experience at all, and she still won. So is the
1: model of what it takes to get elected changing? Absolutely. And I think, you know, for the better. Um, We said as part of the last election cycle, what we saw is, you know, just the playbook change. So there was a time not that long ago that you had to be a certain type of candidate, you had to show up in a certain type of way. And by the way, that certain type of way was very much like a man on the campaign trail. It was what political consultants advise women to try to do, kind of hide that side that for some is very different in women and how they would naturally show up. What we saw in the last election cycle is voters were looking for that authenticity. They were looking for women to be able to connect. They were connecting with women differently. And so it was this amazing moment of a record number of women stepping forward, running for office, very much in in themselves and voters responding well to it which helped to move us to a place where you know then other candidates can look and say oh okay i don't have to be somebody that i'm not and 2018 it was a big year primarily for democratic women we're seeing another historic year with a historic bump for republican women so i think there'll be another story that will come out of it this year of just how much more is changing not only in the candidate pool but in elected body
0: She Should Run is a nonpartisan organization, as you mentioned. Republican women, what's their message and the issue that they're running on?
1: Yeah, you know, I can't speak for the the whole party platform, but what we see with women who come to politics for the first time, regardless of party, is women want to get something done for their community. Truly, it doesn't matter what party you're coming from. Most are not coming to give the extra time and muscle and effort that it takes with one specific agenda. You know, that that happens. But for the most part, and especially at the local level, women are showing up because – They want to make good for their community. So we see that on both sides of the aisle. I don't think this election cycle is going to be any different. I don't think it's easy to run for office as a Republican woman. The support levels look very different for Republican women than they do for Democratic women, especially at the highest level. That's about where the, you know, institutional bodies in each party are putting their effort and their support. And unfortunately, you know for Republican women, that same level of support is not there from PACs, from the institutional players and beyond. So, um, you know, those women who make it there are working really hard to do so.
0: What's your plan for election night?
1: This year is going to look really different than any recent election that many of us have known. I think, you know, this year we're looking at the high likelihood with mail-in ballots that there will be a lot of unknowns on election night and probably, a lot of fear, and a lot of hope all mixed in there together. So I will be right there with everyone else. But remaining in a place, frankly, where we're in another year where we have a historic number of women on the ballot, a historic number of women from different political parties, a historic number of women of color. I think all of this is what it takes to build the healthiest, strongest democracy possible. So I'm hopeful that while we may not know what the outcome is on election night, that we're telling a story of progress and that people are, you know, taking a deep breath and knowing that all the change we want will not happen overnight and that we have to keep pushing forward to build that representation that we know we so desperately need. You started
0: She Should Run in 2011. What's been the most difficult part of your work, but also the most rewarding?
1: You know, the most difficult part is making a case that this focus on building the possibility in women's minds is important. As a society, we want to jump to what's tangible. And what's tangible is who's on the ballot now? Who's the candidate? So, you know, the majority of funding, philanthropic dollars, the majority of, you know, political dollars that float, they all go to the side of supporting those few amazing individuals who have made it to the ballot. When in reality, if we're not also putting that same level of support and innovation and, you know, kind of directing resource towards building pipeline and building diverse pipeline, we're going to slow our ability to close this gap that we so desperately need to close. So I would say that's the challenge. You know, the reward is seeing these women step up to lead. We regularly as a team come together and tell the stories. And you know, they're often stories, it's not gonna be always names that that individuals recognize because these are women running for local office, but they'll come to us and they'll say, Okay, three years ago <laughs> I was referred to She Should Run. I signed up for one of your programs and I'll be honest, I haven't thought about it since then. But I, you know, wanted to let you know I am on the ballot for, I just got elected to, and every single time, you know, we, se- we celebrate each and every one of those as a team, and we celebrate it obviously for the woman and what she's doing, but we also celebrate it because this reality, it just takes time. So every seed that we're planting, which you can't like see, shows up, shows up down the road. And that ultimately what we're trying to do, um, so it's it's definitely rewarding.
0: This was great. Thank you so much for joining us, Erin.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trinae Noree. Our executive producer is Kateri Okum. Additional help from personal finance editor, Bere Lam. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.